This time I'm going to ask you once again to turn to the book of Job. As we continue our study in this book, chapter 31. I'll be reading to you the the whole chapter, verses 1 through 40. Job, chapter 31, verses 1 through 40. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Hear God's word. Job speaking, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step is turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another. Let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. If I've despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? If I have kept the poor, if I have kept the poor from their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself, so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without a covering, if his heart has not blessed me. And if he is not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless, when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket, for destruction from God is a terror to me. And because of his magnificence I cannot endure. If I've made gold my hope, or said to find gold, you are my confidence, If I've rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much, if I observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I have denied God who is above. If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, or lifted myself up when evil found him. Indeed, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? But no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I've opened my doors to the traveler. If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families, so that I kept silence, did not go out of the door. Oh, that I had one to hear me, 
Here's my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. That my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. Thus far God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look at uh, what, what might be called a kind of summation of all that Job's had to say to his friends. Help us to learn from it uh, the nature of your dealings uh, with this world, Father, the dealings with your people, the way we deal with one another. We pray that you'd give us understanding, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And what we call the Sermon on the Mount is recorded for us in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. We read there in verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. In my copy of the Bible here, the New King James Version, the editors of the Bible, as they do throughout the Bible, will sometimes put notes over a particular portion to kind of sum up what is being taught in those verses. And what is written in mine is Jesus forbids oaths. And some have taken this teaching here is that we're simply not to make any kind of an oath. I would submit to you that that's not a very good title. That's not what is being spoken of here by Jesus. He makes reference, of course, to what we'll find in the Old Testament. I've heard that it was said of old. Well, what was said of old? One passage that we find is in Numbers, chapter 30, verse 2. God speaking to his people. And the stipulation here is if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. But is Jesus really saying that one should never make an oath? What do we read about Jesus himself when he was brought before the Sanhedrin? We have that recorded also for us in Matthew chapter 26. They, of course, were trying to find something against him where they could justify their putting him to death. We read that in verse 63 that the high priest spoke to Jesus and said to him, trying to corner him, pin him down. He says, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Here is Jesus himself submitting, essentially, to the taking of an oath. We read over in Hebrews, a point being made by the writer of that book, 
chapter 6, verse 13, that God made a promise to Abraham. And we know that promise, that covenantal promise that we have first recorded for us in Genesis, that I will make of you a great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what's being referred to there. That promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he, God, could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing, I'll bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. That's the essence of that covenant that was made to Abraham. And here is God actually uh, submitting to swearing by himself. That's a condescension on his part. He's utterly reliable, of course. There is no reason to ask that he take an oath. But the insinuation there is that when you take an oath, there is a covenant that's involved. And what happens is that these covenants are sealed with an oath. The issue, therefore, in Matthews is not that you shouldn't take an oath. The issue is that you should not make false oaths. You should not make wrongful oaths. You should not make foolish oaths. One of the foolish oaths that we have recorded for us is in Judges. One of the judges, one of the, essentially the rescuer of God's people. That was the pattern in the book of Judges. The people would rebel, succumb to idolatry. God would bring discipline upon them. They would, and then they would cry out to God for mercy. And God would raise up a deliverer, a judge. And one of those judges was Jephthah. And he was called to deliver the Israelites from the oppression they were receiving from their enemies. And we read about it in Judges 11, in verse 30, that he made a vow to the Lord and said, Look, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands. They were the ones who were oppressing Israel at that time. If you do that for me, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. And I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. Great intentions. And yet when he got home, we read in verse 34, he came to his house at Mizpah, and there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. What a foolish oath that was. Or you may have oaths that are similar uh, as to what he says there in the passage we did read from Matthew 5, those who were swearing by, their, by the earth, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by their head. You sometimes people hear people say when they assure you that what they said is true, on my mother's grave, this will happen. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Your mother's grave, the temple, the earth, Jerusalem, have no power to enforce the validity of your statement. What Jesus is really saying, and we have to remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to Christians. That is not a general discourse for the world. He's talking to those who have new hearts, who have new desires, who have been forgiven, who are following after their Lord and Savior. He's saying for you, if you really have that new heart, that new disposition, that new love for God and your love for your neighbor, there shouldn't be the necessity of an oath. People should believe you. Your character should be such that anybody who hears what you have to say would not question it in any way. 
Well, the world's not like that, is it? If we didn't have oaths, uh, you couldn't be a witness in a trial. You couldn't get married. You, quite frankly, couldn't become a covenantal member of this church without taking an oath. If you've ever watched any courtroom drama, you often see the scene where someone is a witness and the questioner, the lawyer, says, Now remember, you're under oath. The, the, the idea there is uh, you're probably a liar. <laughs> And what you've said is lie. Do you really want to say that? You're really under oath. That's how the world operates. But for the Christian, there shouldn't be that need amongst ourselves. So we, we should have that level of character where an oath is not needed. Well, why an oath? Even God himself has condescended to give an oath as regards what he said about his covenantal promises. Well, it implies a covenant. That covenant that you take in a courtroom. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That is a covenant and secured with an oath. And to think of a covenant, therefore, is there's obligations. If you swear to tell the truth, then things will go well with you. If you don't tell the truth in a courtroom, you'll be subject to lying in a courtroom. Of course, we see that all the the time in our present days. We have uh, people coming before Congress who willfully lie and even admit it. And there are no repercussions in that situation. But a true covenant has obligations associated with what you've sworn to do. And if you don't fulfill those obligations, there are sanctions that occur. And why the covenants? Well, aren't the covenants in a fallen world really the basis for an orderly world and a moral world? And if, more importantly, though, we, we make covenants and we swear oaths because we're in God's image. And God is the one who makes covenants. He's the ultimate covenant maker, as it were. And he has offered up oaths himself, condescended to do that. Well... We certainly know that we live in a world where covenants and treaties are broken all the time. I think of the American Indians, for instance, who were promised in a treaty that they could have the Black Hills. They considered that to be a sacred site and that the white man would not enter into the Black Hills. Well, until they found silver and suddenly that treaty was gone. And we see those kind of breakings of treaties all the time. So, really, firstly, as we examine this passage, let's, let's first of all observe that the, fundamentally, God reveals his purposes and God governs the world through covenants. You see it right in the very beginning, the covenant that was made with Adam. God told Adam that there was this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, And that if you eat from that tree, you will not just die, but surely die. The implication is that if you don't eat from that tree, you will live. And so we we see that sort of if, but kind of a presentation of a covenant. There are obligations, don't eat from that tree. And there are sanctions, if you do eat from that tree, you will die. And that's exactly what happened to Adam. And that's why the world is the way it is. 
And we call that covenant, that particular covenant, the covenant of works. Those stipulations, those repercussions if those stipulations are not kept. And what was the the obligation to be a law keeper? God had laid down a particular law as regards Adam, and God has the prerogative to do that. He created Adam. He can set the terms and the conditions for our existence. And we saw the breaking of that covenant by Adam, and that's called sin. That's called lawless, lawlessness. And it's interesting that Job himself makes reference to Adam here in verse 33. Now, you may have in your notes there or in your particular translation that instead of the word, the words uh, as Adam there in that verse, you, you might see uh, the words as other men. I would suggest to you that the translation I have covered, if I, if he says, if I've covered my transgressions as Adam, it's a valid translation as other men, but Adam, wasn't he really the beginning of that? Did, is that not a, a trait that we've inherited? Is that not something that we're all guilty of hiding sin? Exactly what Adam did. He did not immediately confess what he had done. He fled from God. Instead of enjoying those walks in the garden with God, he fled and he covered himself because of shame. And we've inherited that trait. We've not only inherited the guilt of his sin, just that one sin was enough to separate us from God. We've inherited his nature. And that nature was to flee from God and to hide his transgression on that particular occasion. And I'm pointing this out because what we see in this chapter is that we have a a kind of a framing of all that Job has to say in the light of the covenantal nature between God and the creature, man, Job. He immediately begins it with covenantal language. He says there, I've made a what? A covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a woman? And he goes on to talk about uh, essentially bringing up the, uh, the obligations of that covenant that he's made with himself. And he does that because we're covenantal people. But we're in the image of God. He does that and essentially presents the obligation, but all the, also the sanction. It says in verse 3, is it not destruction for the wicked, a disaster for the workers of iniquity? He understands that covenant. He knew a weakness that he had, and he wanted to stop it at the very beginning. He knew the temptation that men have when they look at beautiful women. I wish more women understood that. I wish a lot of these young women, young teenagers, would, uh, instead of dressing like prostitutes and streetwalkers, would understand that they're drawing the attention of men. Now, maybe that's on purpose. Could be. But how careful, uh, I believe, women have to be, particularly Christian women, in uh, dressing modestly. Job understood that. And he understood the temptation, and he was not even willing to take the first step. I remember one time having a man describe... uh, 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 Proud of the fact that he didn't go after other women, but he was more than happy to do what he called window shop. And that's simply to start to begin that process of temptation. That, and, but the point that I want to make, really, though, is he's using covenantal language here. That is the nature where there's order, where there's a, a moral existence that we're part of. And it really gets to the heart of the problem that Job is having with God. Here's how Howell Jones put it. 
He says about Job that his lament, and of course these chapters we've been looking at, much of what he's had to say is a lament. Why, why, why am I being treated like this? I'm not the terrible sinner that my friends are telling me that I am. I'm not sure why I'm suffering, but it's not for the reasons that they're giving, which is why Hal Jones puts it this way. His lament amounts to a complaint that the sanctions of the covenant, which he's going to cover here in this chapter, that the sanctions of the covenant, meaning the repercussions of disobedience, have been put into effect against him in spite of the fact that he's not broken the covenant stipulations. And that is a kind of a summary of of the case that he has against God. I'm being treated unfairly. I'm being treated unjustly. And he's going to appeal to the covenantal nature that man has with God that found, found its first expression in the covenant of works. And that covenant, by the way, is still in effect. That didn't go away. Every human being will, will be judged ultimately on the covenant of works. You might step back. Well, take heart, Christian, because there's someone who's kept the covenant of works for you. He's the one who's kept every stipulation of the law, and he's one who's paid the debt, who's experienced the sanctions associated with the breaking of that covenant, as Adam did. It was death. Christ experienced death, eternal death, paid the debt, so that now that barrier has been removed. Job is essentially saying, and the way he puts it here is, I am not a covenant breaker. I'm not that covenant breaker that I've been accused of being. And he makes that right off the bat with that verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes. There's this personal participation in the understanding of that covenantal relationship. There is that resolve that's associated with it. There is commitment that is there. And it's very interesting. If you go to the very end of this chapter, he's also going to use covenantal language. Look at the verses 38 through 40. If my land cries out against me, and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their life, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. Well, I hope that verse 40, when he mentions thistles and weeds, perhaps brings to your memory uh, the part of the curse that was pronounced in the garden. You'll continue to work in the garden, Adam, but it won't be like it was. There will be weeds and thistles. That's covenantal language that Job is using in this particular case. And what it's really telling us is that creation itself is part of this covenantal structure as regards the world the way it is. This is part of God's governing of the world. Adam and Eve were brought into existence, not just to sit around. They were to be ones to fill the earth. They were ones to multiply on the earth. They were to subdue the earth. They were placed into a garden. And Adam and Eve were to work the garden. Those were the obligations associated with that covenant that was made with them. Ultimately, under the subheading, a subheading, as you might say, of the covenant of grace, this would be that covenant of blessing that was associated. And what Job is saying, if I broke that part of the covenant as well, then let there be judgment. 
Of course, where uh, the, the there was to be a uh, if you go to Leviticus chapter thirty-five, excuse me, twenty-five. Part of the Mosaic Covenant was uh, is given to us there at verse 1 in Leviticus chapter 25. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be for food." Part of the blessing on mankind was also connected to the, the use of this creation. That's how the Israelites were to understand that. It's part of that covenantal structure that God has with man. There were obligations associated with Adam and Eve and further obligations that were imposed upon the Israelites as to the use of the land. They were to let it rest every seventh year. And he's essentially saying, I didn't do that. I didn't, do, I didn't violate that. If that did happen, that's another story. But I didn't do that. It's interesting how Paul ties in creation as well. If you go over to Romans chapter 8. Paul has made this wonderful statement, of course, in verse 18. Where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time... We're not worthy to compare it with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That was Paul's perspective on what he endured in this life. That perspective was not one that Job could read in the book of Romans. That book had not yet been written. Job would learn that by experience. And, and it would make sense as regards his suffering. And there was something to look forward to. And he was saying there's not only something to look forward to for God's people, but creation's involved in this as well. Because he's going on to say in words that essentially turn personification kinds of words that he uses about creation. He says, essentially, it's not only the earnest expectation of the believer for the glory that is ahead, but the earnest expectation of creation itself. Verse 19, eagerly waits... For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What? In hope. Because creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, just as you and I, brothers and sisters, groan and labor, the creation itself groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That's part of that triad, isn't it, that we've talked about with Paul? Faith, love, and hope. Hope of what? Hope of the world to come. 
That is a great motivator for us to live in this world because we know there's something better that's coming. Doesn't that help us understand a little bit about what the world's doing right now? Don't we see Satan attacking that hope? Don't we see him attacking God's covenantal faithfulness even to this creation? You might say Jesus is a cosmic savior. He's not only redeeming fallen man, he's taking back the world. He's taking back the universe. And that's under attack. The uh, the hope that we have of a new heavens and a new earth where uh, Satan's works will be ultimately finally destroyed, where there'll be no more evil, where there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more death. We see the world not only denying that, and undermining the gospel itself, as we've seen several ways along the way here through Job's friends, who were coming up with a works salvation, were trying to undermine any sense that he had that there was forgiveness and grace. The world is also attacking uh, this hope that we have as Christians. Where do you think all this nonsense about climate change is coming from? Where do you think all this global warming scares and frights the world is trembling and they're fearful of all these things? That's Satan trying to undermine that hope. Now forget the new heavens and the new earth. This world is going to, is going to be awash in water. And yet, uh, because of all the melting that's take place, taking place, and such hypocrisy, we have some of the promoters of that actually building homes on places that if they were true to their, what they're promoting, it would be underwater in a few years. God promised Noah, I'm not going to do that again with a flood. Again, the denial of the flood, because that's part of that hope. And if you deny that, then you deny the promise that was made to Noah. As long as the earth remains, there will be hot, there will be cold, there will be springtime, and there will be harvest. We don't worry about if there will be fall coming. We know it will come. I was telling uh, Mark earlier this morning, that, and perhaps you read it yourself, a, PhD, a doctorate in, uh, uh, individual and, uh, had proclaimed that the, the, the day that we had a couple days ago was the hottest day on the planet in 125,000 years. What nonsense. First of all, the world hasn't been around that long. And second of all, how do you know that? Tree, we get it from tree rings. Show me a tree that's 125,000 years old. Such nonsense. It's so satanic. This is his attack even on that greater covenantal hope that we have. And that's what Job is doing there. He's using that covenantal language and like bookends on everything he has to say. And that really is a driving factor is how are we to understand this chapter? And so how are we to understand in that light? What does he do? He goes into what you might call a a if-then kind of a structure. Take your finger and just run it down through the whole chapter and see how many times, I didn't count it myself, but see how many times you see the word if. If this, if that, if this, if that. It's the very same structure that was used in the Mosaic Covenant. If you do this, if you do that, if you do that, there's, there's blessing. If you don't, but if you don't, there's cursing. Job essentially turns that upside down. 
He's saying if you can find the transgression of the covenant, every time, if I've done this, if I've done that, if I've done, then judgment. He's turning it upside down. It's that kind of a structure. You see it right away. Verse 5, just as an example. If I've walked with falsehood, if I'm a liar, or if my foot is hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then, then let, here's the punishment. If, if I've done that, then here's the, the covenantal sanction associated with the breaking of that stipulation, of that obligation. That's that covenantal language that he's using. And he's using it as a kind of a challenge. He's using it as a legal argument. He, again, picture him in a courtroom. I've been accused of all of these things. I'm challenging that. And he goes right down the line. You almost have a preview, as it were, of the Sermon on the Mount here. Because he touches on these multiple categories of sin, which uh, deal with inward sins, outward sins. They deal with not only the eyes, they deal with motion. My feet take me somewhere, my hands touch something. It's all encompassing what he has to say. He's saying, if I've committed adultery, talk about covenantal faithlessness. We see that all the time in our society. And he takes it very seriously. If I've done that, if if I've been sexually enticed, if I allowed myself, for instance, to look after the young virgins, or if I've stood at the door of my neighbor looking at his wife, any number of things where someone might become sexually enticed, uh, the, the movies you watch, the books you're reading, if those are arousing those kinds of thoughts and activity in your mind and in your, fe- in your affections, that, that's to be sexually enticed. You're putting yourself in danger by doing that. If, if there's been social prejudice, if I, I've exhibited that kind of a thing, Look how he talks about it there. He says uh, in verse 15, Did not he who made me in the womb make them? What right do I have to look down on somebody for whatever reason? The color of their skin, their nationality, their language, any number of things. We all come from the same Creator. How dare I look down on someone else? Did, Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? By the way, there's a beautiful verse regarding the, the fight against abortion in this country. God's fashioning one in the womb. He says, if I performed any injustice, you look at the, the slavers who did look down on uh, African Americans. And the argument, as far as they were concerned, was a denial of verse 15. They would say, these are not people. These are property. And it's the same argument that's being used by those who who promote abortion. These are not human beings in the womb. These are things. This is a fetus. This is a, as one person described it down at the abortion clinic there who was promoting pro-choice, this is a parasite in the womb. It's horrific language, but that's the, that's the rationale for looking down because they don't believe that that child, whether it be the child in the womb or that person with a different color skin, all came from the same Creator. This is satanic. 
This is this attack on that part of the covenantal relationship that God has with his people and with this universe and this earth. And that's what, that's what Job is doing. He's, he's, he's a great attorney here in promoting this argument. Using that covenantal language, which is his moral premise. If I've, if I've justified myself in things that I do wrongly, if I'm committing idolatry, ancient times, and perhaps there's parts in the world where the sun and the moon are still worshipped. Why we still use the language of that paganism. Isn't this sun day? Isn't Monday moon day? Abbreviated to Monday? That language is still there. And look how he puts it there. And my mouth has kissed my hand. Isn't that what you do with someone you love? You blow it their direction. You can't touch the sun and the moon. But that's what was being done. Passing on a kiss to the sun and the moon. Because I don't do that. Have I oppressed those who are poor? No, I've done the opposite. They, he was attacked viciously by that, on that by his friends. Have, have I taken advantage of those who are weak? No, I've helped the weak. Have I uh, dealt poorly with the orphan? Have I put my trust in money? That's the problem the rich young ruler had. All these laws I've kept, and uh, what did Jesus do with them? You say you keep the law, let me test you with the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods. What he was saying to them, man, you have a god. It's called money. Get rid of it. That's not a teaching against wealth. It was a teaching of making wealth your god. And if you want to keep the second half of the Ten Commandments, take that money and give it to the poor. That's how to love God. And that's how to love your neighbor. And he's saying, I have not made money. And he had money. He was a wealthy and a great man, a powerful man, prior to his what he was enduring at the present. I've never uh, laughed or looked down on my enemy when he was finally dealt with. I've never tried to cover up my sin. Again, we go back to Adam. That's what Adam did. If I've covered my transgressions, if I've done that, then I'm wrong. He's challenging the, the accusers here. If I've ever harbored the, the inward lusts and impurity, then do it. He says in verse 5, let me be, if I've walked with falsehood, one example of a sin, verse 6, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. But he also talks in verse 3, is not destruction for the wicked. If I've done any of these things, then let me sow in another reap. Verse 8, if I've been enticed, then let my wife grind for another. It's kind of a strange expression, but he's essentially saying if you commit adultery, going after someone else, don't be surprised if your mate does the same thing to you. You obviously can't be trusted. That's essentially what he's communicating there. Then he say that there should be judgment. He's really echoing what David would say many years later in Psalm 51. Psalm when David was finally confronted with his sins of adultery and murder. He says in verse 4 in that Psalm of Repentance, a wonderful psalm. He says, uh, he's got it right. 
He really echoes what Job thinks about these things too. This is covenantal language that David uses here. Against you, you only have I sinned. See, the the world doesn't have any concept of that covenantal nature that God has with his creation. They don't see laws as his laws. They're whatever you want to do. Do what's right in your own eyes, as in the days of the judges. But David understands what it's really about. I have broken the covenant. I have committed covenant unfaithfulness, lawlessness. And it's your covenant. And I've broken it. And I now am experiencing the sanctions associated with the breaking of that covenant. I'm not supposed to commit adultery. I cannot do not murder. I've done it. So therefore against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And then he says this. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's essentially what Job is saying in this chapter about himself. And Job knows it's not just the outward that he's doing. He knows that with these actions, if I do, if, 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 reveals ultimately what's in the heart. You see it there in verse 7. He talks about my heart walked after my eyes. That's inward, the mind, the affections, the, uh, the will. He says it again in verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman. He says in verse 27. So that my heart has been secretly enticed. You know it begins there. That's what's occurring there. John says this in his first letter. 1 John 2 verse 16. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, where's lust begin? Right here. The lust of the eyes, the eyes are are the inlet, but the lust that's taking place inside, the pride of life, where is that? Is that not in the affections, in the will? I think so much of myself, what I've done. I'm my own God, I'll do what I want to do. He's saying none of that is of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is influenced by the enemy. And he also knows this about God. As he says in verse 4. Does he not see my ways? Count all my steps? We can hide from others. Physically hide. That's what Adam tried to do. Or just keep it inside. What we're really thinking. What we really want to do. God sees it all. When we sin, someone has written, it's like walking into his throne room and sinning right in front of him. Next time you contemplate sinning, think about that. He knows that. It's in full view. And he knows the ultimate sanction too. That's a great motivator for his desire to, to, to please God. The development of that fear of God. He says in verse 23, For destruction from God is a terror to me. When you sin, do you think of sin that way? Do you think that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Do you see Him that way? Is that not part of the fear of God? That's how He saw it. Uh, And because of His magnificence, I cannot endure. He had that perspective about God. And that was a great motivator for Him. That motive, that's part of his fear of God. 
He said in regarding these sins in the latter part of verse 11, it would be iniquity deserving of a judgment, for that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. He understood hell. He understood there's a final judgment coming. There's a final reckoning that's coming with God. He understood that. Well, he makes his final appeal in verse 35. And you see that language again. Oh, you can almost hear the, the moan, the down deep moan that's there. Not just a, a word, but oh, that I had one to hear me. That's what I want. And here's my mark, his signature. I'm willing to put my signature to this. If you can find this in me, I, I claim innocence. I'm not that guilty person. I'll even sign the document that says that. And he says, oh, that the Almighty would answer me. That's his plea. His, the concern he has for his relationship with God, that is his primary concern, over and above all the other suffering he's endured. And then he does this in the latter part of verse 35. And he did something like this in the previous chapter. He doesn't say... Oh, that God had written a book. He says, oh, that my prosecutor had written a book. An alternate translation there would be, oh, that my accuser had written a book. In the previous chapter, he he had talked about God as being cruel. The English Standard Version actually supplied the word God there, but really the words were you and he. He doesn't say God. I think the ESV took a step they shouldn't have taken. There was a certain amount of murkiness there, of doubt. He might have been thinking about God, but at the same time, this isn't the God I know. I don't understand and believe God to be cruel, and yet there you, he, and here he says the prosecutor and, and the accuser. Who's the accuser here? Satan. I think Job is, has some sense, something's not right here. There's something else that's going on here. That's why he's not willing to say that God would write this book. The the accuser, you write the book. And we know that Satan, of course, is a liar. But look what he says he'll do with that book. I'll carry it around. Put all those accusations down. I'm confident. You have an indictment against me? You know, aren't we seeing this now too? You've been indicted. What, for what? Can't tell you. You see what's going on? <laughs> How satanic is that? That's what he's saying. I've been indicted here. What are the charges? Write them down. I'm so confident that they'll all fall apart that I'll take that document. If you write it down, I'll wear it like a crown publicly. That's how confident he is. But something's wrong. Is it just God acting? I know God to be just. But it seems like he's cruel, the word he used in the previous chapter. seems like he's unjust. I'm not quite sure I understand this. Job will. Job's coming along. And he's understanding. We have the benefit of the whole Bible. We can see the big picture here. But we see the same devices Satan using today. This attacks on the gospel, attacks on creation itself to take away the hope that we have of a new heavens and a new earth. 
of forgiveness and grace, something his friends spoke nothing of. All they talked about was be pious again and you'll be blessed. That's a work salvation. Well, what are we to make of all this? To some, Job might come across to them in this chapter as being self-righteous. He might come across as being pharisaical. Paul was that way. Paul described himself the way, uh, about himself, the way God described Job. He says, as to the law, I was blameless. Paul was deceived. Paul didn't understand the the fullness of of what the law meant. He, He saw the outward things. I don't murder, I don't steal, I don't do this, I don't do that. He he didn't understand fully the heart. The heart of the law is love for God, love for your neighbor. He did come to understand it when he, I believe, was convicted with the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. I think that's what Paul, that's my opinion, what Paul's saying in Romans 7. Then the law came. And through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, through the illuminating work of the Spirit, Paul then came to see, I wasn't blameless before the law, that love for God, love for neighbor, no, it was love for me. That's why I did all those outward things, that formality, that pharisaical approach to life. I have an idol. An idol's me. And I coveted the approval of man. That's how Paul did it. Was he really innocent, though, here in this chapter? That's what he claims. And yet, he, earlier in the book, he's a confessed sinner. Yes, I've sinned, but not like you say I've sinned. So how do we interpret this? And this really gets to the heart of the gospel. How can he be innocent here? Well, doesn't Paul help us in there in Romans in chapter 4? Paul was talking about Abraham in that chapter, how he believed God, and his faith was counted for righteousness because he believed and acted on what God said. It was a faith righteousness, as it were, because that righteousness is something that's foreign to himself, and it's appropriated by faith. So you can talk about it in those kind of terms, which is what Paul does. And he says in Romans 4 and verse 5, but to him who does not work, Meaning, I'm not using the law as a way of gaining merit for myself, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. We reject that. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who does what? Who justifies the ungodly. How do you do that? Job is ungodly as any other man or woman that has ever lived. How does God justify the ungodly? Well, that's what Christ is all about. And that's what the gospel is all about. Who One who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the whole genius and the wonder and the heart of the gospel. And how does he go on to talk about it? His faith is accounted for righteousness. Faith it's in and of itself doesn't save us. It's faith that it appropriates that righteousness. That's what Paul's saying. Those terms are, are joined together. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man, I'm still reading in Romans, describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, not infuses, 
like the Roman Catholic Church teaches, come get your infusion of grace so you can do your works through these sacraments. That's not, that's not biblical. He's talking about impute, meaning credited. It's, it's taking the righteousness of Christ. It's almost like accounting terms. And taking it and putting it into my column, which was empty. And taking my debit column and putting it into his column. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes, credits, righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How? Through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's how. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's the righteousness and the purity and perfection and innocence that Job possessed right now, his now. That's his justification. Well, but he still sins. Well, if one is justified, that goes hand in hand with sanctification. You cannot separate the two. If there's really a true saving faith that that results in justification, there must be, absolutely must be, and we confess that in the Heidelberg this morning. There must be evidence of that true faith. Those are those righteous acts that the Christian, yes, imperfect as they are. And yet there has to be some evidence, those good works. I think Christopher Ashe says it nicely. He's talking about an innocence, already an innocence as regards justification, but he says an innocence also that's beginning to be worked in his actual life by grace. He's saying that that's a progression. That's what sanctification is about, this progressive conformity to Jesus Christ. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing out the fruit of the Spirit. And that, as the Heidelberg made reference to, that's actually a, a, a means by which one can gain assurance. If, if you begin to experience it, that, hey, I'm not like I was. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was. There's something going on where I, 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 I seem to be more patient. I, I, I now have more mercy with other sinners. Forbearing and I'm more faithful in my dealings. I don't see the need to lie anymore. I, 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 right down the line, you can identify with the fruit of the Spirit as Paul outlines it in Galatians. And it's interesting about God, we're under construction. If you've ever been to a construction site, it's pretty messy, right, Rob? <laughs> and that's how our lives look at times. But there's, it's, it's going somewhere. And God sees the whole picture. He sees the finished product. That's what he was talking about at the baptism of Jesus. This is my son, whom I'm well pleased. Well, was that pleasure just the person, Jesus? Or was he seeing the person, Jesus, as the head and all of the believers as his body? He saw the whole thing right there. This is my son and his head and body. And I'm well pleased. And Job will and now has come into that perfection as he's now with the Lord, as is all the other believers, the saints, we call them, who are with the Lord today. And that's where we're headed as well. 
Paul again teaches us from Romans. He contrasts the life of the flesh versus the life living in the spirit in Romans chapter 8. He says these words verse 16. The spirit himself. Now he's talking about those who live by the spirit. Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's a wonderful work of the spirit. And if we are children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. That's part of the great hope set before. But then comes the word if. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. There's a a description of the Christian life right there in a nutshell. And this is what Job is experiencing. And this is why he can make those kind of statements. He keeps short accounts with God. When he sins, he confesses it. And he repents. He offers up a sacrifice. He understood that. Job was innocent, justified, and he saw the promise in that sacrifice, just like Abram saw it. The whole gospel was given to Abraham in that event with Isaac. Father, who will provide the the sacrifice? God will provide the sacrifice. There's the gospel. That's exactly what happened. And Isaac is a kind of a type, as it were, of Christ ultimately. The father offering up the son. Abraham did not have to kill Isaac. There was a a, a ram caught in the thicket. But the picture is there. There's faith. Abraham believed it. He was obedient. There was submission. There was sacrifice. There was blood. And there was promise. All of the elements of the gospel. He saw Christ through all of that, as did Job. And that's the life of the Christian. And the Christian to be able to uh, to analyze oneself. We're not perfect. But to be able to really put a check on ourselves. What do we do when we ask for forgiveness? Do we simply say, Lord, forgive me for my sins? That's not a bad prayer, but how about this? Lord, forgive me for the time I lied. Lord, forgive me for the time that I looked at a woman and there was lust that was developing. Lord, forgive me for the time that I cheated on my employer because I used his time that he's paying me for to be my time. I could go right down the list and be specific about making confession of my sins. That's what Job is doing. He understands that there's all of these, as I said, he gives a kind of a preview of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus didn't simply say, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your father. He got to the heart of it. It's in the heart. All you have to do is say a bad word about someone and you've murdered them. That's what slander is. That's what gossip is. All you need to do is lust after a man, after a woman. You've committed adultery. It starts here. And that puts the, now it becomes serious as to how we live as Christians. And that's what Job is saying. And that's the challenge he's offering here. He still needs to be rebuked and God will do it. There is a smidgen of self-righteousness here. But he understands the covenantal nature that God has with his people. And that God is faithful. And that God will bring you through this suffering. And as we looked at First Peter last week in chapter 5, the result will be he'll perfect you. That's what he's doing. He'll establish you, keep you from falling back, backsliding. 
He'll strengthen you to fight the enemy, to run the race. And He'll settle you. What a wonderful thing to be settled on Jesus Christ. No, no doubt about it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And to believe that and to be settled on that, not let the world knock you off of that wonderful belief. He's the great, not the cornerstone of that foundation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think we're encouraged, but also humbled by Job's response here. When he uses so many ifs, if I've done this, if I've done this, don't we see ourselves that we have done those things? And there are repercussions. And yet there's something else called the covenant of grace, where God has sent his son to deal with those transgressions, such that we can be forgiven by you, who are a just God, to be forgiven justly. You don't overlook sin, but it's been dealt with. Christ also dealt with that bondage of sin so that now we're freed up. We have everything we need to to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. And now we understand the sufferings of Job because we understand the sufferings of Christ. That His sufferings, His going to hell so that we don't have to go to hell. Father, may there be that godly, holy fear of you that you take sin so seriously. Anytime you doubt it, just look at the cross. But also to know that we have grace such that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can pray. We have one another to help us along this journey. Have your word, which is truth, Father. Help us. Help us to live that life that is pleasing to you. Yes, justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. To know that, yes, there are those good works, but even those have been prepared for us. Help us by your grace to do them. Not thinking that we're chucking up brownie points with you or somehow accruing merit. That's already being accomplished. But to do it out of genuine thanksgiving and praise and And to know that everything we do is in plain view. To know that any suffering we're going through has its limits. And it's for a purpose. And there really is a wonderful hope set before us of the new heavens and the new earth. In spite of what the world tries to tell us is influenced by the enemy. And to be able to put up that shield of faith to ward off all of the fiery darts, fiery accusing darts of the enemy. And to know that who will accuse me. It's you who justify. Thank you for such a great salvation, for such a great Savior. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.